This is the Read, Write, and Create podcast, the podcast where you get a bite-sized session of creative writing coaching from me, Lori L. Tharps. I'm an award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction, a journalist, and a former college professor, and I've spent more than 20 years writing, teaching, and coaching creative writers, and I created this podcast because I want to help as many BIPOC writers as possible get their stories out of their heads and into the world. Are you ready? Let's go. On today's episode of the podcast, I'm giving you a pep talk on the power of the written word to change the world. Yes, the pen is mightier than the sword, and I want all of my BIPOC writers to wield this powerful weapon with intention and agency. And because you know I like to give you role models to emulate, I'll be sharing the inspiring story of how Ida B. Wells weaponized her words and made miracles. This is a pep talk you don't want to miss. Hello, everybody. I hope your writing practice is going well and you're feeling productive and at peace with your work. Now, before we get started with today's pep talk, I just wanted to take a moment to make a little confession. I wanted everybody listening to know that, yes, I created this podcast because I really do have a heart and a mission to motivate and inspire BIPOC writers. I really do want to help BIPOC writers get their stories out into the world. That's why I'm behind the mic here every other Monday. But this is the confession part. I need these pep talks as much as you do. So I'm recording this episode right now on March 8th, and I am three days away from a huge deadline for a memoir that I'm writing for a client. This is part of my ghostwriting work. Now, this project has been super fast-paced. I've been writing like crazy for the last few months, and I am seriously exhausted. I'm ready to be done. I was seriously ready to be done yesterday. The finish line is really so close. It's literally three days away, but I am just plain old exhausted. I sometimes don't even know how I am going to write one more word. But do you know what it is that gets me back to my desk? Phyllis Wheatley. Zora Neale Hurston, Octavia Butler, and all of the other literary ancestors that I've been talking about here on this podcast. On the days when the writing is just really hard, I really sit at my desk and I call on the spirits of our literary ancestors and ask them to guide my hands. I look to them for inspiration. I think about the lives that they lived and how hard it was for them to write, for them to get their words out into the world. There were stories, their poems, their essays, all of it. And it's enough to motivate me to keep going. I really say to myself, they cleared a path for me. They worked harder than I ever could imagine working and got it done. So I guess I can do it too. So that's just like a super long way for me to say that I really am enjoying these pep talks. I hope you are too. And I hope that they are helping you all as much as they are helping me. All right. That's all I wanted to say. Just wanted to let you guys know a little bit more about me and my own writing life before I get on to today's pep talk. So here we go. To begin, the first thing I want to say is we're really working with this idea today that the pen is mightier than the sword. 
by the end of this episode, I really want you to feel and understand how powerful the written word really is. So they say the pen is mightier than the sword. You know, that sounds kind of cliche. They say that, you know, words and stories can move mountains, can change hearts and minds. And again, these all sound like just platitudes and cliches, but it's really true. And if you think about that, that your words can change minds, it can change hearts. That's powerful stuff. So let's get into this story of Ida B. Wells to see what's possible. All right. So when people think of Ida B. Wells, they often summarize her legacy as being a civil rights activist or an anti-lynching crusader, someone who fought for women's rights to vote. And she was all of those things. But Ida B. Wells' weapon of choice to agitate, to fight, to demand the rights of whether it was black people or women, it wasn't a pistol. It wasn't a picket line. It was the written word. Ida B. Wells was born in 1862 in Holly Springs, Mississippi. It took me a minute, but that B in her name was, her middle name was Bell. So it's Ida Bell Wells, which is a mouthful. So I think that's why she's always known as Ida B. Wells. So anyway, Ida was born in Holly Springs, Mississippi in 1862. Note the date. She was born enslaved, but within six months of her birth, the Emancipation Proclamation was declared. So really, Ida B. Wells grew up knowing freedom. She had a I would say a pretty happy childhood. She went to school. She was educated. Both of her parents were, they actually also became educated as well post-slavery. And she had seven brothers and sisters. And it seemed like she had a pretty nice early life. However, at age 16, she became an orphan because both of her parents and her baby brother died in a yellow fever epidemic. And it just so happened that Ida was visiting relatives in another city at the time and was spared the fever. So as the oldest of five remaining siblings, Ida made the decision that rather than letting her siblings be, you know, separated and some go there and some go there, you know, they were saying the girls would go with certain relatives, the brothers would be like farmed out to work for other people. She said, no, I will keep my sisters and brothers. I'll find a job and I'll take care of them. And that's exactly what she did. At age 16, Ida got a job as a teacher in rural Mississippi. She apparently lied and said she was 18 so that she could get the job, but she already had more more education than most of these kids in the rural areas of Mississippi where she was teaching. So that's exactly what she did. She was teaching full time. I heard in some accounts that she literally had to walk six miles to work and still managed to cook and clean and take care of her brothers and sisters. By the time she was 20 years old, her siblings were old enough to, for the most part, take care of herself. Her brothers were old enough to get apprenticeships, and Ida and her sisters left Holly Springs, Mississippi, and moved to the nearest big city, which was Memphis, Tennessee. They had an aunt there who said, come here, there's more opportunities for you. And sure enough, Ida got a job teaching in Memphis, and she was able to continue her education at Fisk University. And it's then that Ida starts to actually write what we would probably consider letters to the editor to local newspapers that were mostly run through black churches. So she's writing for black newspapers and she's just writing like little letters to the editor about life and what's happening in their communities. 
And she really enjoys it. Interesting to note is that she writes under a pen name, though. She writes under the pen name Iola. And it was said that she was using that name because she wanted to sound like she was, quote unquote, of the people. She didn't want to sound like, I don't know, like an outsider or too uppity or too educated. So she chose the name Iola and, you know, hoped that people would see her writing as Again, someone from the community of the people, and she was just sharing stories about what was happening in the local community. Now, two things that are really important to note is that Ida B. Wells' parents were both involved in local politics and advocating for education and fighting for the rights of Black people. Her father actually was one of the founders of a school for formerly enslaved Black people. And the other thing to note is that You know, so she has these educated parents who are what we would call community activists today, but they were just working to improve the lives of black people. But the other thing that's really important to note and that will kind of undergird Ida's future work is that she was born in the era, this magical time that we very rarely talk about, which is Reconstruction. So Ida B. Wells comes of age when Black people are promised their 40 acres in a mule, reparations, full citizenship as American citizens. So there's this tiny little window where she, again, is born into where it does really seem that Black people are going to be able to be full-class citizens and receive the rights of a full-class citizen. But of course, we know that that's not really what happens, but that is the world that Ida B. Wells was exposed to and believed in. So we all know that in every story, there's an inciting incident. And for Ida B. Wells, that inciting incident occurred when she was 22 years old. So Ida is traveling on a train from Memphis back to her hometown of Holly Springs. And she had bought her typical ticket that, you know, it's the ticket allowed her to sit wherever she wanted, which was in the ladies' car. And again, remember this time period, this is before Jim Crow becomes the law of the land. So there's no segregated cars. So every other time that she's traveled on the train, Ida has been able to sit in the ladies' car. Well, this one time, she's 22 years old. She's told she cannot sit in the ladies' car anymore, and she has to go sit in the colored people's car, which also doubles as the smoking car. So it's got men, it's got smokers, it's dirty, it's disgusting, and it is a cheaper ticket. And she paid full price. And she was like, no, I'm not moving, not getting up. So this is like the Rosa Parks story, but 50 years earlier. So let's give Ida the the praise that is due here. But basically, she's like, no, I'm not moving. That conductor's like, you have to get out. And he literally put his hands on her to physically remove her from her seat. And Ida was like, oh, no, you did not just put your hands on me. And what did she use to fight back? Did she write a letter? No, she bit the man. (laughs) Yeah, she bit him. And it took two other men, three men in total, to physically get her off that seat and into the colored people's car. And Ida was so mad because she knew she was in the right. As soon as she got back to Memphis, she sued the train company and people, she won. Yes, she did. She won because she was in the right. But don't get too excited because this is America. And of course, the train company appealed the decision and they won on appeal. Now, here's what I said, though. This is the inciting incident. 
What does Ida do? Once the train situation was appealed and she lost, she took to the newspapers. She wrote a scathing article saying what had happened to her, explained the whole thing, and exposed the hypocrisy and injustice of the new Jim Crow laws. And she got a lot of people talking. And she realized how powerful it was to put her grievances on paper for other people to see. So she starts writing regularly now, and she's not just writing her kind of calm letters to the editor. She's using her writing in the local Black newspapers to basically critique and complain about what's going on and how Black people are being mistreated in Memphis. She's so invigorated by this practice. And by the way, she's basically side hustling because she's getting paid for her articles. She's not getting paid a lot, but she's getting paid. So she's still a teacher. She's writing her critiquing articles. And at one point, she writes an article or a series of articles critiquing the poor conditions of the Black public schools in Memphis, saying that they're substandard and the Black children shouldn't have to have schools like this. And she gets fired. Yep, they fire her for speaking out. But by this time, Ida has already decided that she understood her assignment. And she understood that her mark in the world was not going to be made by being a teacher. It was going to be made by being a journalist. And she purchased a share of a Black newspaper in Memphis called The Free Speech and Headlight. And she took to being a journalist like a fish to water. She dove into the world of journalism with a clear mission to use her paper to keep her people informed and aware of what was happening in Memphis that would affect them for good or for bad. And like other Black journalists at the time, Ida understood how powerful it was to have a mechanism to get information to Black people that wasn't filtered through the white power structure. So, of course, she could have been writing for, like, mainstream newspapers if they would even allow her to, but she knew that she wouldn't be censored with her own paper. The New York Times obituary, when they wrote her obituary, they said this about her, quote, her goal was to write about Black people for Black people in a way that was accessible to those who, like her, were born the property of white owners and had much to defend. This is what she's doing. She now is a newspaper owner and continues to publish her own work and the work of other journalists in her paper, The Free Speech and Headlight. It wasn't until Ida was 30 years old. So that was around her mid-20s that all of the train stuff happened where she got fired from her teaching job. So it wasn't until she was about 30 years old that she became an internationally known journalist. I'm not going to go into the deep details of exactly what happened. I'm going to give you a quick summary overview. Otherwise, this podcast episode would take forever. But basically, here's what happened. So in Memphis, where Ida is residing, there was only one grocery store where Black people could really shop, and it was owned by a white man. Now, this man sold like pretty crappy products, not very high quality, and he sold it at obscenely high prices. So in response, three men, Thomas Moss, Calvin McDowell, and Will Stewart, decided to open their own grocery store. They were like, we don't have to take this abuse. You know, we don't have to buy these awful products and pay all this money. It's ridiculous. Why don't we create our own grocery store with quality products at reasonable prices? No surprise. The grocery store was a big success. Obviously, Black people are going to patronize this store, not because it's a Black-owned store, but because it was just better than what that white man was offering. Now, 
The store becomes very successful. And of course, this makes the white man mad because he's lost all of his customers. And what does he do? Under some ridiculous pretense, he claims the black men did something bad to him. The black men get arrested and they are then in the jail. They're pulled out of the jail and all three men are lynched and killed and their grocery store is demolished. It's raided, it's ransacked, and then just absolutely destroyed. Now, Ida B. Wells was friends with all three of these men. In fact, she was the godmother of one of Thomas Moss's children, so their murders hit really hard. But it also created in her a steely resolve to avenge their deaths, as well as the other Black men who were being lynched in the post-Reconstruction era in record numbers. You know, the numbers were skyrocketing because lynching was the way that white people were trying to keep Black people oppressed and suppressed so that they could not be treated as full-fledged citizens of the United States. This was a true weapon of white supremacy. So Ida B. Wells is saying, this cannot stand. We are not going to allow these three men to have died so violently and so viciously in vain. So she took to her newspaper and she wrote about these atrocities. And she talked about how, I mean, through her own investigations, she was clear I mean, it was pretty clear anyway, but still, she went through the proper authorities and channels to figure out that the claims of wrongdoings by the Black people were absolutely made up. And she implored the authorities to do something about it, to bring justice for these men's wives and their children, to punish the men responsible. But of course, law enforcement did nothing because a lot of them were involved in the lynching. So what is she going to do? Did she give up? No. She knew that you know, white law enforcement in Memphis was not going to take the side of the black people of Memphis. So she did something more powerful. She wrote in her paper, she told the black people of Memphis, look, we are never going to be supported here. We're never going to be safe here. We're never going to be able to thrive and flourish here in Memphis. So we need to leave. Yep. She wrote in the paper. She told the people this over and over again, get out of Memphis, vote with your feet and leave. And they did. There was such a mass exodus of black people leaving Memphis, many of which moved to Oklahoma, which wasn't even part of the official United States. That was like free territory. She told them to leave, go there, go to Oklahoma, where at least you'll be free to do whatever you want to do to build your farms and live your life without this Jim Crow laws and this vigilante justice. So they did. They really did. They got to the point where whenever a black family would start packing up and leaving, there would literally be a party in the black community. They would celebrate and be like, go, go, leave. And so this is exactly what Ida B. Wells was able to do with her paper. She used the power of the written word to convince black people to retaliate with the only power that they had, which was to leave. And it was a retaliation because, you know, the white community needed black people. They needed them to do a lot of the labor, whether it was farm labor whether it was domestic labor, they needed them to support their businesses. Well, the white population got so mad and so desperate because they were watching this exodus from their cities. So, of course, they blamed Ida B. Wells. They're like, look, this woman keeps egging people on to leave. They thought they had to do something. So the white people are like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? So they're like, where is the source of power? It is Ida B. Wells and her newspaper. So what did they do? They burned down the newspaper. They burned down her building. They burned her printing press. And Ida B. Wells wasn't even in town at the time. She was up north. But they put the word out. These white vigilantes were like, if she puts her face anywhere in Memphis or anywhere in the South again, we're going to kill her. 
So she lost everything. Her whole business is destroyed in flames and she can't go home because literally they are threatening to kill her on sight. Do you understand the power of the written word now? Do you understand how powerful Ida B. Wells was with her printing press? Now, she was known to pack a pistol (laughs) at all times. She traveled with a gun under her skirt. But it wasn't the gun that people were afraid of. It was her printing press. It was her words. That's powerful. She had effectively weaponized her words to destroy white people's businesses and livelihoods until she became an outlaw. That's powerful. She was like the OG influencer. You understand what I'm saying? So now that she had a real taste of what words could do, Ida B. Wells moved to New York and then eventually settled in Chicago, where she continued to write for different newspapers. In Chicago, she started her own newspaper again and continued to work exposing the horrors of lynching to the rest of the world by continuously publishing articles about the practice. And she was doing two things that were really powerful and why she had such an impact on the eventual reduction of lynching in America. And that was two things. When she would write about lynching, she would describe in gruesome detail how these innocent men were put to death and she spared no detail. And she got a lot of flack for that because she would gross people out. It was because it was disgusting. It was horrifying what was done to these people in the act of, quote unquote, justice. In addition to that, Ida B. Wells went on like a fact finding mission throughout the South to prove that the charge of rape which was what was most often like 80% of the lynchings that were done. It was because, quote unquote, a black man raped a white woman. She went on a fact-finding mission by herself investigating a lot of these lynchings and discovered that, in fact, in most of the cases, of course, there was no rape. But on top of that, that a lot of the relationships that were discovered between a black man and a white woman were consensual relationships. Just writing about that got Ida B. Wells death threats, but she needed to print that truth to put it in the faces of the rest of America and later globally to understand just how depraved these white men were for killing black men because they really just couldn't handle the fact that white women were sleeping with black men consensually. So those were the two things that Ida B. Wells was doing. And people were, they were really eating up her stories. Like people were fascinated and appalled as she wanted them to be. And that's how she really got things to change. She got people to pay attention because she wrote the actual truth and she researched the truth and wrote what she found. So Ida's stories, you know, she's writing for her black newspaper, but her articles were actually reprinted to 200 other black newspapers all over the United States and abroad. So her work is being picked up all over the U.S. She's like her own Associated Press, right? So this woman is actually supremely popular at this point, which is how come she's invited to speak all over the United Kingdom. She goes traveling in England on more than one occasion to do speaking tours talking about the atrocities of lynching. So... Really, it is her articles that make her famous and they make her famous, not, you know, she's not like a celebrity, but they make her famous in that she is known as the expert in this issue. And when she gets the floor or the ear of people with power, she tells them what needs to happen to stop these lynchings. So for the rest of her career, Ida B. Wells 
never stops advocating for the ending of lynching of Black people. And again, she's often recognized as this anti-lynching crusader, which she was, but it must be understood that she was an anti-lynching crusader and she used journalism, she used the power of her words to make change happen. And change did happen because of her. Now, Ida B. Wells did not single-handedly stop all lynchings in the United States, but because of her unwavering commitment to write about it, people began to be prosecuted, and the American people as a whole decided, after being shamed over and over and over again by Ida B. Wells, that they had to stop pretending that this racial violence was a legitimate form of justice. People actually stood up and said, no, we have to stop. And Ida B. Wells was really smart about getting businesses in the UK, for example, to stop purchasing American cotton, for example, until these practices stopped. So she was always figuring out how to use her articles and her opportunities for speech making to advocate for economic boycotts, for example, or again, the idea of moving with your feet to not support white capitalism as the only way for Black people to make a difference. Think about how forward-thinking this woman is. So she's writing, 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 never stopping, using the written word. And she used journalism, but she also wrote pamphlets, which I guess we would consider them as like small books today. But she was constantly documenting the evidence and her persuasive arguments to end lynching in the United States. After all this, Ida B. Wells could have just been like, okay, I've done my job. I have worked so hard. I have spent 25 years of my life writing and speaking on anti-lynching efforts. I'm going to just rest on my laurels now and raise my four children. Yes, she was married and had four children, but she never stopped. Even after her wedding, she was asked if she was going to stop writing. And she said, quote, having always been busy at some work of my own, I decided to continue to work as a journalist for this was my first love. And it might be said, it's my only love. So she's done all of this work for anti-lynching. She's gotten foreign governments to step in. She's gotten the United States government. She's gotten local governments. She's gotten local people to stand up and say, we can't allow this to happen anymore. If that was all Ida B. Wells was known for, I'd be like, awesome, you're amazing. Please give her all the credit for all the things. But that's not the only thing Ida B. Wells was doing with her words. Just to sum up, (laughs) Ida B. Wells, in addition to being in you know, a journalist, publisher, and an anti-lynching crusader. She was also one of the founders of the National Association of Colored Women's Club, which was created to address women's suffrage, particularly for Black women. She was also one of the founding members of the NAACP. Her contributions to the founding of the NAACP is often overlooked because she did not stay within the organization's early leadership, but she had one of the most important impacts on the organization, and that was this. Early on, the founders of the NAACP tried to decide if they needed to create their own publication. And most of the members were like, no, we don't need to. It would be better if we just wrote our articles in mainstream publications because it would be considered more prestigious. And Ida B. Wells was like, oh, girls. Sorry, she didn't say, oh, girls. She's like, oh, guys, because she's probably one of the few women in the room. She was like, listen, listen, take it from me. You need your own publication. You cannot allow other people to dictate, to censor what it is you're allowed to say 
when you're allowed to say it, you must have your own publication. And that's how the Crisis magazine, the magazine of the NAACP was created because Ida B. Wells was over there saying, you need to have control of your own press. So again, her influence and impact is everywhere. All right. So she was one of the founders of the National Association of Colored Women's Club, one of the founders of the NAACP. She also created the first kindergarten for Black children in Chicago. She also ran for Illinois State Senate in 1930. She did not win, but still, she was in the politics too. She was such a badass feminist that Ida B. Wells was one of the first Black women to hyphenate her name when she got married, which is why you'll see her name is Ida B. Wells hyphen Barnett. That is incredible. At this day and age, this is what she's thinking already. That's how forward thinking she was. Ida B. Wells died on March 25th. 1931 of kidney failure. She was only 69 years old. Wow. What a life, right? So what are the takeaways? What have we learned from Ida B. Wells? What is possible for us as writers? One, the pen truly is a mighty weapon against injustice. Number two, you can use your words to move people into action. Number three, Storytelling is a powerful tool to get people on your side of an issue. Number four, storytelling is a powerful way to make people care about whatever you care about. Number five, having control of the press is where the real power is. And number six, one of Ida's most famous quotes, one had better die fighting against injustice than to die like a dog or a rat in a trap. I hope hearing about Ida B. Wells' courage and determination to change the world through the written word has inspired you to pick up the pen. I hope when you're desperately looking for the motivation to keep telling your stories, you think of Ida. I hope when you're asking yourself, what will Sherry my one story do? And then I want you to think about Ida B. Wells if she had said that. If she had said, I'm just one black woman at a time when black women were like third class citizens. If she had said, what will my one story do? What will it matter if I take pen to paper and write down these stories? If she had said that, then many of us might not even be here to answer that question. Your stories, your words matter and they can move mountains. So please, please, Get them out into the world. All right, class dismissed. I hope this pep talk and coaching left you inspired and motivated to write. I hope you feel a deeper connection and commitment to your literary projects and practice. If you'd like to read more about the incredible life and times of Ida B. Wells, which I barely even touched on today, her life was so amazing. There are so many biographies about her to read, including some great biographies for young readers as well. I'm going to create a list of books and articles that I think you might like to read about Ida B. Wells, and I'll leave that link for the list in the show notes. The Read, Write, and Create podcast is produced by me, Lori L. Tharps. Our editor is Brad Linder, and our theme music is by Wattaboy. 
Be sure to subscribe to the Read, Write, and Create podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you won't miss a single inspiring episode of the show. And if you're looking for more creative writing inspiration, writing prompts, and useful resources for your literary life, be sure to check out all of the amazing content on the Read, Write, and Create website at readwriteandcreate.com. That's read, write, and create.com. Also, if you're not already, please follow me on Instagram and Twitter because I'm always sharing advice, opportunities, resources, and writing prompts that come my way. Of course, you want to be in the know about all the ways you can keep your writing life lit. So find me on those internet streets. On Instagram, I'm at Lori L. Tharps, my name. And on Twitter, I'm at Read, Write, Create. And create is spelled C-R-E and the number eight. So Read, Write, C-R-E, the number eight. Finally, if you know any other BIPOC writers who might need a creative pep talk to help them stay motivated, please share this show with them. Share it online, share it in real life, share it with smoke signals. I don't care. Just, you know, tell a friend who might need a pep talk. Thanks. I appreciate it. Now, you know, I'll be back in two weeks on Monday. Until then, keep writing. Thank you.